Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up on the show tomorrow, our series of conversations with the candidates continues with Bob Wallace, an independent candidate for mayor in 2020. He's running again for Baltimore's top job, this time as a candidate in the Democratic primary. Bob Wallace makes his case with me tomorrow on midday. And now with the 2024 election cycle officially underway, because the Iowa caucuses are in the books, a conversation about the influence of the African-American church in the electoral process. Baltimore has been home to a long list of extraordinary black religious leaders who were deeply engaged in the political process. The Reverend Dr. Kevin Slayton is a longtime policy advocate and minister who has written a compelling new book, about the intersection of politics and the pulpit. It's called Politically Preaching, Why Politics Are Local to the Black Church. Slayton chronicles the history of black clergy vetting, promoting, encouraging, or dismissing candidates for public office, and he turns an unstinting eye to those in the church who have not, in his view, done enough to apply the principles of prophetic social engagement to the many ills that afflict the African-American community in Baltimore and beyond. The book is a clarion call for activism, courage, and boldness to hold elected officials accountable and to place the biblical principles that undergird the movement for social justice front and center in public discourse. Reverend Slayton is the senior pastor at Northwood Appold Methodist Church and an adjunct professor at Lancaster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. As a public policy advocate, he served as the executive director of the Baltimore City House delegation in the Maryland General Assembly. He's worked with the Public Justice Center, Associated Black Charities, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and Progressive Maryland. He's currently the campaign manager for the Maryland Center on Economic Policy. And the Reverend Dr. Kevin Slayton joins us here in Studio A. Rev. Kev, good to see you. Tom, thanks for having me. And congratulations on this book. There's a lot to think about, a lot to chew on uh, in the book. And in the very the preface of the, the book, the foreword, you say that the question for black churches and black t- preachers today is why and how so many of them have abandoned the leadership role and how they can regain it going forward. You make the case that the, the, the cler- black clergy are not doing enough. Yes. Um, in, in, a, in an interesting critique, um, my assessment for that, Tom, is based on the legal forming of what we come to know as charitable choice. Um, it's sort of revealed in 1996 through the Clinton administration, and it's this nation's attempt at unblurring the line of separation of church and state. How can faith-based institutions sort of engage with government entities, et cetera, and reap some type of financial benefit of that association. And at, at the turn of, of that decade, when that began to happen, you you begin to see the term I use is a neutering of the prophetic voice. Churches, you know, particularly Baltimore has a very rich history of it. One only needs to um, lift the name of the goon squad to know how impactful African-American clergy were in engaging uh, social policy. Uh, but with charitable choice, there was the development where you could begin to see faith-based institutions reap financial benefits to build schools and other projects. And as a result, you saw a decline in their prophetic uh, voice in the public square. So charitable choice means exactly what? What, charitable what did that choice, law entail? It basically said that prior to that, you were called a church, a mosque, a temple, or what have you, a synagogue. 
we became known as faith-based institutions. And it said that you could now engage in this way as long as you agreed to do two things, Tom. One, not prophesize. Don't try and recruit folks to your faith as a result of receiving these resources. And two, don't discriminate against folks who are not a part of your faith with these resources. Um, and so as John McKnight speaks of in his book, um, A Careless Society, many faith-based institutions begin to care less because they were no longer professionalized. Charitable Choice said, you know, the church that typically went across the street to help a family that was in need, they didn't have the credentials to go do that. Um, and the church down the street through Charitable Choice, now had certified folks who could do that type of outreach. Um, and it just sort of created this competition process um, and began to push that prophetic voice further and further behind behind the curtain. You know, it, it may be true uh, that your, your, your uh, assertion that the, the church isn't doing as much as it could do, should do. But on the other hand, it's also true, isn't it, that the influence of the black church is... Uh, is unquestionable uh, in American politics. We think about uh, the Iowa primary that happened last night, the evangelicals, uh, the white evangelical community in Iowa propelled Donald Trump to a, you know, a 50 plus uh, percent margin in that race. Is there an analogy between that, that white evangelical movement and the black church, uh, the black church and, and its support of Joe Biden? Uh, I, 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 think, I think there's a clear distinction between the evangelical right movement and the traditional African-American faith tradition. Uh, one needs to look no further than the letter uh, King writes from the Birmingham jail. How is it that we are reading the same book and coming out with such different views of how it is to be um, used in public spaces, there is there is there should be no intermingling of the two. Um, but it, 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 it's it's undeniable that the black church certainly uh, had a lot to do with the election of Joe Biden uh, back in 2022. I mean, take us yeah. back to Mother Emanuel Church, you know, uh, following Iowa and New Hampshire, those primaries. Uh, you know, in, 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 in uh, 2020, rather, yeah. uh, in, in Biden's uh, attempt for the presidency. Yeah, I think that that's where I began the book there. Um, rarely does a candidate in the presidential primary lose those first two outings, Iowa uh, and New Hampshire, and continue on. But Joe knew something, um, as Clyburn said uh, later on in that race, that, that Joe knew South Carolina, but South Carolina knew Joe. And the reason is... Um, Two weeks after the massacre, uh, Dylan Ruth of those nine members at Mother Emanuel, Joe Biden shows up to church there. Across the country, we only saw maybe a snippet of it for about 30 seconds, for maybe a day, maybe two. But in South Carolina, they saw it on a constant reel for 30, 40 days. And, and, and so Joe Biden knew that he may have lost those first two, but if he, if he could just make it to South Carolina, the black church would, would organize in such a way, in a way it's known to do, um, to sort of lift him to a place it hadn't done. And I think we saw it also um, the weekend before uh, January 6th. Um, and I, I think there's an interesting connection there. When you think about the work of Joanne Gibson Robinson and Martin King, that prophetic voice when it's aligned with the uh, organized, organizing skills of women, uh, Mrs. Robinson doesn't have emails, she doesn't have internet, but she organizes an overwhelming majority of the black folk in Montgomery County to know that once the signal is sent, this is what we're going to do. And it elevates this cause to a way that it actually begins to change how this nation sees black folk. You fast forward to, to 2021, you look at the organizing skills of Stacey Abrams, partner them with the prophetic voice of a Raphael Warnock, and you see, boom, what happens? There's still this 
amazing power that that is available to the prophetic voice of the black preacher. It just has not been tapped into the way it has been in, in, in previous years. You also talk about the financial uh, assets mm-hmm. of the black church. You say it's quite possible that on any given Sunday in America, black churches will have collecti- collectively raised enough money to send more than a thousand students to Harvard on a four-year scholarship. Isn't that amazing? So, so we have to be more mindful of how it is we're using our resources. What are we doing? There was a period when I could ride through Baltimore from one end of um, over near Chester all the way over to downtown, and for, for a good while you didn't see any new development but a local church and a local funeral home. Everything else around it looked totally devastated. Uh, but now you see Hopkins sort of moving in, you know, buying more properties or what have you. But, 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 but we, sh- we should definitely be more conscious about how we're using our resources. When I think about, again, those guys, um, Marion Bask and Vernon Dobson, those, they were using their resources and partnering with folks who some folks in the community didn't view them as favorable, but Willie Adams was an extremely gifted and talented man. And so if you take, for instance, the 1300 block of Madison next to Douglas Memorial Community Church, they don't, Marion doesn't have the money to go or, or the, the resources to go borrow the money from a bank that would give him the money to, to buy apartment buildings, but Mr. Adams does. Uh, they were very conscious about how they were using those resources. I don't necessarily think that we see that happening anymore in this day and age. I want to turn now to Larry Gibson, who's joined us here in Studio A as well. He's a law professor and a biographer of Thurgood Marshall and a longtime political operative. I guess I can call you that uh, without embarrassment. Uh, Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So uh, Kevin uh, Slayton writes in his book, uh, when it comes to uh, prophetic witness in politics, Jesus knew that love your enemies didn't mean don't make any. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, in politics, you got to make some uh, here, here, there, and everywhere. Um, What's your take on the influence of the black church in your many years uh, of experience in politics here in Baltimore? Well, my experience in Baltimore politics began in 1968. I was the campaign manager for a man named uh, Joseph Howard, who became a judge. And in 1968, we had the first successful citywide election of an African-American. And the next two years, uh, two years from that, uh, we had really a good successful year in 1970. I was the uh, campaign manager for three blacks uh, who were elected citywide, uh, Milton Allen, a state's attorney, uh, Paul Chester, court clerk, and Bill Murphy Sr., a judge. But also in that year, we had the first successful election of Perrin Mitchell, uh, to Congress. So Baltimore at that point had three congresspersons elected from uh, from Baltimore. We had tried and come close in 1968. We won with Joe Howard in 68, but we didn't uh, win with uh, Perrin Mitchell until um, uh, two years later. And as I've been thinking uh, uh, back, I see sort of three main groups um, that were really uh, 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 consequential there. Uh, as you've pointed out, uh, uh, there were the pastors and churches. Uh, then there were these young Turks, um, of which I was a member, mostly people in their 20s um, uh, 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 or so. And then there was the black uh, business community, uh, 
many of them whom had started, frankly, in the numbers uh, uh, a racket but had become uh, legitimate businesses who provided uh, a lot a lot of, of support. Yeah, Willie Adams being uh, yes. one of those kind of Yeah, I ended gentlemen. up as Mr. Adams' uh, attorney uh, after uh, George Russell, uh, who was the in the law firm that I joined, uh, became the city solicitor and first a judge and then a city solicitor. So I know very much about uh, uh, his and other uh, uh, business persons' uh, uh, support. Uh, I remember one time, and Willie Adams never let me forget this, I represented many of the civil rights organizations. This time it was CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and they wanted to get a headquarters. And uh, I was their attorney. I kind of had a conflict there. I'm representing Willie Adams, but also uh, very supportive of CORE. And so I, I, we worked out a, a loan agreement where he would loan them the money. And uh, I sensed that he didn't expect to be paid back, but I insisted that with the uh, core that they were going to pay him back, and they did. And I noticed almost a sense of disappointment on Mr. Adams's face. He had not <laughs> expected to. And he, for years, would tell people, he made CORE pay me, uh, uh, Congress of Racial Equality <laughs> pay me back. So those were the three main groups, the, and, the, the and, church. And, and the church was a, a major player yes, in that. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I want to stress the whole church. The ministers, of course, uh, were articulate. They were leaders. They were opinion um, shapers, but to me, on the ground, like as a campaign manager, there were other assets of the church that were really important. To begin with, just the spaces. Churches provide buildings where you can have a group of people. Uh, they have office space. Something that will seem very kind of unimportant now is they had copier machines. People didn't have Xerox as they back then. It was called a mimeograph or ditto machines. You needed two to three hundred copies of a flyer or a leaflet yeah, or something. So the, the infrastructure was yeah, the, important. The, the, the right. infrastructure. They, they had chairs. They had if you needed to have a group of meeting. Churches <laughs> had tables and they had chairs. They had spaces. They had copying machines. So, yeah. and they were places of of leadership training. I think in terms of my mother's uh, involvement. Uh, the, at that point, the largest in the nation evangelical black group was the Church of God in Christ. And my mother was the, uh, uh, let, let's start with her profession. She's a domestic worker and then uh, uh, later uh, a cook. But in Baltimore, she was District Missionary Gibson. She the, She was the district missionary for about 30 churches uh, in, in in Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, and, churches and have a deacon board. Uh, these are the guys, mostly with guys then, who ran the business affairs of the church. My father was a janitor, but he was the deacon, the head deacon of his church. They counted the money. They took care of the business uh, affairs. So these were leadership training. You ever getting into one of these older churches and decide that you're going to decide where you're going to sit? Think of the organizations, the, the, the usher board. 
You know, you yeah. will sit where that and, sister and, tells you and, go sit. Right, right. And, and Kevin Slayton, I mean, churches now have a whole lot more than chairs and tables and, uh, you know, mimeograph machines uh, and even the infrastructure that Larry Gibson yeah. talks about. But, but when you talk about prophetic social engagement, what do you mean by that? And, and how can that be uh, animated and realized? In, in, a, in a really basic understanding, it is really the modeling of the example of the Jesus that we read about in Scripture. Not this passive person that we often sort of take think about, but a revolutionary, one who literally turns over tables um, in order to sort of stand up for those who are oppressed, one who's always speaking up for those who are living on the margins of society. Um, and to, to, to Dr. Uh, Professor Gibson's point, um, I think it's so impactful to understand the role that the church played for that type of prophetic voice. As he described, our, our ancestors, they may have been janitors, they may have been uh, domestics, they may have been boy, they may have been girl, outside of the walls of those institutions, but there, they were somebody. You had titles, um, and you used those to sort of speak up and to encourage you to sort of speak against injustice. That's what that prophetic voice is, is to really, in, in a nutshell, to see something and say something even if you recognize it's going to require you, you may have to suffer something. The Reverend Dr. Kevin Slayton, his new book is called Politically Preaching, Why Politics Are Local to the Black Church. I'm Tom Hall. Larry Gibson is here as well. He's a veteran political operative in Baltimore, has been working in politics for decades. You can join our conversation. Our number here at Midday, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at WIPR. Org. We're going to take a little break, but before we go to that break, each week here on Midday, it is our practice to read the names of people who have lost their lives to violence in Baltimore City and to list their names on the Midday webpage. We do this to stand in witness to their untimely deaths and to remember their families and friends in their hour of grief. So far this year, five people have been identified as victims of homicide in our city. Police have identified one person who was killed last week. He is Dion Beasley. He was 36 years old. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back. This is 88.1 WYPR, Baltimore's NPR news station. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is the Reverend Dr. Kevin Slayton. He is the pastor of Northwood Appold Methodist Church here in Baltimore and the campaign manager for the Maryland Center on Economic Policy. His new book is called Politically Preaching, Why Politics Are Local to the Black Church. Larry Gibson is here as well. He's a longtime political mentor and advisor in Baltimore. He's on the faculty of the University of Maryland School of Law and the author of Young Thurgood, 
the first part of a biography of Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. There with me here in Studio A, you are welcome to join us on the phone, 410-662-8780, or you can drop us an email midday at wipr.org. So, Reverend Kevin Slayton, give us an example of what you mean by politically preaching. Of course, there is this, you know, uh, putative uh, distinction and separation of church and state, so it can get a little tricky. I think to sort of address that first, I argue in this in this work that it is the election of Hiram Revels, the first African American to go to the U.S. Congress. He's ordained a minister, Methodist minister here in Baltimore, moves to Mississippi, goes into the um, U.S. Congress, and he's followed by about five or six other, mostly African American clergy into the U.S. Congress. And for the first time, that's when we begin to see the language separation of church and state. So I argue that it is literally one of the first dog whistles. Uh, But for me, my introduction to what would be politically preaching was my encounter with a young man I was lobbying at the time, representing Casa de Maryland. And you may recall, we were trying to pass legislation for in-state tuition for immigrants uh, who had you know, finished three years of high school here, they could then pay in-state tuition. And as I was meeting with elected officials in my lobby capacity, many of them privately were concerned, Tom, that if this legislation went forward, it would put black folks, African-Americans, further behind as we tried to progress. And I met a young minister who invited me to church. I said, well, I would go if I could find one socially conscious. And, and he invited me. I go, and he preaches Matthew 20, the story about the day laborers. The persons, you know, who started working early in the day, the middle of the day, the latter part of the day. And at the end of the day, the landowner pays everybody the same exact amount. And so those who started earlier were a little bit frustrated because they felt like they deserved more since they'd worked longer. And this minister, the way he worked it, he described and he finished up by saying that discrimination, whether you felt it for 400 years, 400 days or 400 seconds, was still discrimination. Um, it moved me. He took that prophetic witness and sort of translated to his pulpit message. Um, he's pretty good. He went on to become who we now know as Raphael Warnock, <laughs> senator of Georgia. Yeah. And he was the, the pastor at Douglas, Douglas Memorial, Memorial uh, yeah. Church here in Baltimore for several years yeah. uh, before he moved to take over Martin Luther King's church, yes. you know, Ebenezer, Ebenezer Baptist, right? And Larry Gibson, I mean, Kevin Slayton's thesis in this book is partially that um, black clergy uh, and the black church isn't doing enough politically. Well, the world has changed, and of course, um, uh, there are many voices that uh, uh, that can be effective, that can get a message now. I mean, we're all worldwide publishers. Everyone has on their phone the ability to uh, communicate uh, across the nation, across the world. So, yes, uh, at, at a time when that was not the case, the the person or the who had a building who could then you would communicate uh, b- b- by word of, of mouth and people would assemble together it's na- naturally that there will be a dispersal of of uh, of, 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 of uh, you know of influence i would just continue to think though about this historical role of the of the churches in terms of leadership training the pastors themselves were were organizers. They they, they they knew how to put together people, money, facilities, buildings, and then and some like Reverend Warnock end up running for office right. themselves. Frank then, Reed ran for office here in then Baltimore. Within right? the church, I've been just thinking of my church 
there were, there, I mentioned earlier, the deacon board. We had two groups of, of ushers, a senior and usher board. This is leadership training. They had mm-hmm. meetings. I remember my role. There was a Sunday school. There was a separate Sunday school director, and I kept the minutes. And at the end of the Sunday school, I had to read the minutes. It was my introduction to keeping minutes of an organization. We would, we, we would, I would read the day, uh, the day's uh, uh, passage, what we'd studied in uh, Sunday school, how much money had been collected. Uh, this was, I didn't think of it then, as leadership training mm-hmm. uh, uh, for me. My church even had a group of nurses, women who were in, dressed in white. Yeah, the ladies and, in white, and, sure. And, right, and they had on <laughs> white gloves. And, but they had meetings. They had they developed plans. They probably kept some sort of minutes. And then the meetings, the local meetings, the state conventions, the, the Church of God in Christ always assembled in Memphis. They talked through the year who's going to go to Memphis, Tennessee this year. And all of these uh, meetings required massive organization ability, printing ability. And so the black church, under the leadership of pastors, uh, was a place of, 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 of leadership uh, a uh, 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 training, and so as I'm starting out, uh, trying to expand the influence of African Americans, particularly uh, in Baltimore, and get it felt as a as a citywide uh, influence, I turned to where there's there were leaders, yeah, uh, there were there were ministers and, and others, right? And and Kevin Slayton, is it a matter of focus? Um, you mean you write that, for example, um, you call it a perverted increase focus on praise and worship. Uh, a, a narrowing of the definition of justice. These are some of the reasons for the decline of, or the absence even, of prophetic preaching. Is it just a matter of, you know, uh, redirecting the gaze? In one sense it is, and another to, to the professor's point is, there, there are other voices now that are sort of taking the lead role in that. When you think back to Freddie Gray um, and some of the advocacy that took place immediately following, the clergy had to sort of get behind those those younger voices that were, you know, sort of doing their doing their thing, sort of leading the way. Um, I think in many ways we've we've lost focus in an attempt to sort of create these oases of of institutions uh, around this um, this this profit motif of of becoming. Um, these, these mega churches is, is the term that's often used. And meanwhile, most of the, the, the work that needs to be done is at the local level in, in, in smaller communities. Um, and I don't think that's attracting folks in the same way that it used to anymore. You can just look at our conditions, um, again, to the point that the professor is making. They were training grounds, but the, the, the progress we were making um, was leaps and bounds above what it is we're doing now. One of the things I point out, I remember the, the, the race for... Uh, which when um, the former lieutenant governor was running for governor, um, against, Anthony Brown. Yeah, he was running against Doug Gansler, and uh, there were a group of clergy. In the primary yeah, mm-hmm. group of clergy, IMA, maybe about forty-five, fifty, came out and endorsed Gansler. Uh, before the end of the day, uh, there were only two prominent uh, clergy who came out and endorsed uh, Anthony, and it totally overshadowed those other forty or forty or so. I think that there needs to be a redirecting of those issues that are important and impacting our communities in a way that when we engage the electoral process, it's not just this visit through the church, but it's it's conducted in a way that there's an expectation 
that our relationship, our engagement is going to return something back to these communities. Let's go to the phones. Jack is on the line in Baltimore. Jack, welcome to Midday with Larry Gibson and the Reverend Kevin Slayton. Yes, I want to say a personal hello to Professor Gibson, and uh, he has been an inspiration to those of us who actually saw him on the ground picketing and urging and inspiring. And Reverend Dr. Slayton has shown his dedication over the years that he's been in town. My question is, what can be done to galvanize voter registration? Uh, or with the churches and the community at large. At one time, I registered over 400 folks myself. I think that's a record, and hopefully it's not still standing. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jack. I appreciate it. Uh, Larry Gibson, you wanted to speak to that? Well, it's become so easy to vote and to register now. There simply is no Here excuse. in Maryland it is, but it in is, a whole lot of let, other places. Let me just <laughs> repeat here in Maryland. I, 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 I'm almost humored when I hear people say, uh, well, they're taking steps and making it difficult to vote. Remember, through most of my life, all of the voting was on one day. It was on a Tuesday in about a 12-hour period. Now, everybody, just about every state, I think, has some voting by mail. There's voting. It's a voting week or two weeks there's even on the polls voting on Sundays now. I mean, before that, I mean, it's simple to vote. And uh, and that I don't know whether that, that's possible. Well, I, I think that is possible. But, but I just laugh when they say, they're making it difficult. They're suppressing the vote. How they suppress the vote? You got a whole week. You could do it in the mail. Well, the, it's a pendulum. It's, it's a pendulum, no, Larry. I mean, it, it swings one way, and then you know, a bunch of states a, saying it swung too far. So. A, I mean, drop boxes. There was no <laughs> such thing as a drop box. I mean, there's still people who want to come to the polls. I went to last election, and there was a guy standing in line with his mail-in ballot in his hand, I says, you know you can walk right over there and drop that in a box. He just wanted to go into the polling place. He, he had the mail-in one, but he just wanted to, to vote the traditional way. So it's so easy. It's easy to vote, easy to register. You register online now. So the world is changing. And there has been a pretty dramatic, in many respects, in, increase in, in participation. I'm, I'm quite optimistic as to what's happening now uh, as it relates to voter participation mm -hmm. and voter registration. It's, yeah. uh, but, but I do find it, it, it um, interesting. Yeah, so fast well, that, 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 that how easy things are now. Yeah, it's certainly. I mean, it's all relative. And and Kevin Slate, one of the things that you identify is the rise of the mega church <laughs> as a, an important dimension in this whole conversation because churches uh, themselves are are very different. Uh, these mega churches can be unaffiliated. Uh, you know, they're sort of the standalone things. But how is the mega church important uh, in the in this conversation. They factor in pretty heavily. Very few campaigns now um, don't have some strategy for how it is they're going to engage faith-based outreach. Um, and most of that is, is, is geared towards the African-American Protestant uh, voter. Uh, you, you don't see this parade of candidates going through mosques or synagogues or temples. Uh, but 
but there is a planned strategy for them to go through, particularly the larger, the more the mega churches um, on any given particular Sunday. And it's what I refer to as the nod. Um, we know that churches are, because of their 401c3 status, they are prohibited from endorsing candidates. But we also know throughout the tradition of the black church, um, <laughs> Professor Gibson will probably agree, you will visit the black church and often the preacher will say these words, I can't tell you who to vote for, but I can tell you who I'm voting for with the nod. And that's normally the indication of sort of where it is we're, we're directing our votes to go. And it, it's, it just benefits to sort of route those through the larger congregation. If you got eight, 9,000 members, they're opposed to one with 35 or 40. Sure. And Larry Gibson, we just got a, a less than a minute left. Um, when you talk about voter participation, you talk about how easy it is for folks, at least in states like Maryland, to vote. Uh, you hear a lot that the, 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 the black vote uh, may abandon uh, Joe Biden in this election because uh, they're upset about uh, the voting rights uh, legislation not getting through. They're upset about uh, the Israel-Hamas war. Perhaps there's any number of individual issues. Uh, what's your prediction in I, that way? I think that's utter nonsense. Black people are the most sophisticated voters I know of in this country. And they know whose side, who's on their side. But now in this earlier uh, period, the People are going to say various things, but I, I've I, I've seen that prediction more than once. Uh, when the, when it gets down to Trump or Biden, black folks are not going to stay home, and I think that they will continue to vote for the person who is uh, responsible for us having a a black vice president, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, the Secretary of Defense, he even put a Native American the head of the U.S. Department of Interior. Black people ain't stupid. <laughs> so, Kevin Slayton, what do you think? Do you, do you agree with Professor Gibson? I cannot disagree. I think at the end of the day, black folk do know uh, what's in their best interest. Um, and then, again, the church plays a role. Um, there, was a, there was a study we looked at during the um, last election that showed approximately 98% of evangelical churches uh, did not mention the candidates by name, um, and yet and still the people overwhelmingly knew who to vote for. That's all the time we have. Yeah, Larry Gibson the from the University of Maryland School of Law and the Thanks author of Young Thanks for having me. Have me back another time I to will. discuss the word evangelical because okay. it's been stolen and That's a promise I am willing to make right Thank here. You. Absolutely. And Kevin Slayton, <laughs> the book is called Politically Preaching, Why Politics Are Local to the Black Church. Thank you and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Tom. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, I'll speak with Bob Wallace. He's a candidate in the Democratic primary for mayor of Baltimore. He'll be my guest in the next installment of our series of Conversations with the Candidates. Here and Now is up next after the news top of the hour. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. This is 88.1 WYPR, Baltimore's NPR news station.